Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are, however you're listening... Welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Matt Cummings. We're live on 89.3 FM WNUR, Evanston, Chicago. Now look, you want your voice heard, right? 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. What's your opinion on what we're talking about tonight? Call us live on air, 847 847- 866-9687. We're also streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop up. All right. Tonight it's the hometown team when Oliver hosts Alex Enyart, conductor of Chicago Fringe Opera's upcoming production of As One, a chamber opera about a single transgender protagonist. Then Oliver and Matt play fantasy fachball. They compare and contrast two different singers tackling the same aria. I'm going to pick a winner. And tonight they're fighting over Turandot's aria in Questa Regia from Puccini's eponymous opera. You can look that word up. And then the two-minute drill returns with all your opera headlines from the past week with our hot takes on them, including us asking just how high can a person sing anyway. That's at 9.40 p.m. Got a great show for you tonight. Oliver Camacho, so glad you're here. I'm really impressed with your pronunciation of the word reja. You roll the R, you doubled the G. Good job. You give me like a B plus? Yeah, but you were afraid to say the name of the opera. That's okay. Well, no one really knows how to say it anyway. <laughs> I you actually, say the T, do not say the T. It's the, a great question. The beloved radio host, uh, Andy Karzis uh, from WFMT, who passed away um, like uh, 10 years ago at this point, he got to the bottom of it, and he once had a show where he de- definitively mm-hmm. declared how that word is supposed to be pronounced, but I, of course, have forgotten. But I know that it exists out there, the definitive okay. there pronunciation. Is, there is proof. Yes, there is proof somewhere. I, I don't know why I say We didn't introduce Matt, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, oh, Cummings is here, by the way. Um, <laughs> I speak for myself. <laughs> I always would have said turndot, but that, that's that's. But there's another. no ah in Italian like the turndot, you know? <laughs> so you're already wrong. <laughs> there, there, <laughs> there is if you're from Illinois. Yeah. Uh, hey, we got a great if you're show. Norm Waddell. If you're, if you're Norm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, super fast, the Bears managed to wet the bed <laughs> against the Green Bay Packers mm. yesterday. It was, if you've been following the Bears, their QB is on the up and up. Packers, the hated Packers, their QB, Aaron Rodgers, is out for the rest of the season. This was the Bears' chance to finally beat the hated Packers at Soldier Field and they couldn't do it. It was a dreadful day for football, by the way. Pouring rain and 40 degrees. Nobody should have to watch football in that kind of weather. Hey, speaking of sports, you know what's up next. How about we root for the home team? Baseball season's underway. Go, Cubs, go. Mm, feels so good, 2016. There's Bef- when we were innocent. <laughs> yeah, so much has changed. I know. There's always last year. The really the um, parade for the Cubs was right before Election Day, right? It was like at the end of October, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Or at the beginning of November, and then the election yeah. happened, and then there was a women's march, which was a bigger parade. Oh my God, I, I could never do that emotional roller coaster mm. again of the high and the low and the high of all that. Insane. Hey, uh, Oliver Camacho, set it up for us. So uh, today's been a crazy day for me. I left work early uh, to do something very personal. I don't have to share with the audience here, but if you're my Facebook friend, you know what happened to me today. Wash your hands. Um, And then I rushed across town to meet uh, conductor Alex Enyart, uh, who is just beginning tech week for Chicago Fringe Operas as one. And I just want to put out a disclaimer here right now. We give a platform to everybody on this show. 
and you know that there may be somebody on this team of OBS that might be affiliated with with um, Chicago Fringe Opera. Full disclosure, yeah. Yeah, but that is no. That's not why we're interviewing, or that's why I've chosen to interview Alex Enyart. I'm actually super interested in the show. I was so lucky to be able to catch her uh, literally before she was starting one of her final rehearsals. Um, you'll hear that we are in a rehearsal space, that we're in a very urban area, that there's cars passing by, and uh, she has like this little beeper uh, that lets her know that people are trying to get into the building. So the singers are arriving as we are wrapping up this interview. So uh, enjoy this short but very uh, informative interview about uh, As One and conductor Alex Enyart. I'm so excited to be here in the rehearsal space for uh, Chicago Fringe Operas As One with conductor Alexandra Enyart. Alexandra, welcome to Opera Box Court. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, you can call me Alex. Great. We, as you can hear, we are at Ravenswood and the train just passed by and rehearsal's about to start in 15 minutes uh, and the show uh, opens on Thursday. So this is a very intense time for you, so I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about um, you know how you got into conducting, maybe some of your education, and what draws you to opera. Of course. So I came up, uh, my parents are both musicians, and I grew up kind of in uh, pits, band pits, orchestra pits, different things. Um, and so I remember one of my very first experiences was West Side Story, and I Ooh. came up through all that the world of musical dramas. Okay. Eventually I started playing. I went. I came through the band. I'm a clarinetist. So I came through the band and decided I wanted to do music. Uh-huh. Uh, saw my first opera very late compared to many. Um, I was about 17 or 18. Okay. Um, and I saw uh, Marriage of Figaro and I was hooked. And I was like, so I had no idea that this was so great. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is so not what I expected. And then before you knew it, I was going to every show. And when I started conducting, it just became supernatural that the place to go and gravitate towards was opera. Nice. Before you knew it, I was doing that. Well, I mean, I've been sniffing around your CV, and I noticed that you're kind of acclimated towards new music. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a reason why particularly you're interested in new music? So I go. I went to the University of Louisville, which has the Grammeyer Award, which is the largest composition award for new music in the States. As a result, we were really versed in new music, and we spent a lot of time emphasizing it and focusing on it. And while it's something I definitely didn't appreciate my first year, by the time that I graduated, I really appreciated new music. So, and especially since I had come from the band world and I didn't have piano skills, I talked with my teacher, and she was like, we need to find a specific a specific." feel for you to really start in to really get a foot in the door and something you can excel at and I was like wonderful I will I will focus on contemporary works because those have a lot of meaning to me and that'll be a fantastic way for me to get my foot in the door in a community bringing a specific skill set that I have established already so as a conductor of new opera do you feel like it requires a very specific type of musicianship to look at these scores and understand what the composer is doing since there's no recordings and there's no history of these performances? It certainly is. Uh, it's, it's a very exciting journey to study through a piece for the first time and to really be um, going through it. It's very exciting and also can be very frustrating because you're like, I just wish there was an easy way <laughs> to get through this. Yeah. But of course... That's cheating, and no one gets any better that way. Right. So it's, you you play clarinet. I do. I, yeah. So, so I, I started by playing vocal lines on okay. on clarinet. Um, now I'm playing them on the piano mostly, um, and playing through chunking through little bits here or there. My piano skills aren't the strongest, like I mentioned earlier, mm. but it's enough now that I'm getting through. I would say the most important thing to working on contemporary opera is to remember what makes it so important is the text and the text setting and the dramatic motion. And so I think it's very easy to lose that in the technical aspects, but you have to remember that um, the composer is working with text first. So you need to start with text and then you have to go and figure out how it's set dramatically and why does this happen and how does it relate to what's the what's the momentum, what's the motion of, of what's actually occurring dramatically. Um, so I think that it's really important to maintain big picture pacing 
to successfully do a show like this or any contemporary show, I think it's so easy to lose track of that in the color and the explosive, uh, sometimes incredibly challenging technical passages. Um, but you have to maintain the arc. Yeah. So I well, think that's the most important part. Um, you have a connection to another Opera Box Score guest who I interviewed, uh, Claire DeVizio, uh-huh. uh, who is the artistic director slash founder of Thompson Street Opera. And it's my understanding that Thompson Street began in Louisville, and then she moved the company to Chicago. So Thompson Street began um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh! Yes. Yeah, it just started... Um, is, and I was not there for the beginning, but it's my understanding it started in this a small room in a house, and you can go to our website and see the little an image with a little arrow pointing at <laughs> our, our humble beginnings. But yes, it did move into, into Louisville, and um, so it was on a festival season, and so I worked with Thompson Street over the summers, and so I did three shows with Thompson Street while I was there, and when... I graduated. Uh, Claire was looking for a music director, and I knew Claire, so I went ahead and gave her a call, and before you knew it, I was headed up to Chicago. And you've been here since August? Yes. So I, sus- I suspect that you have, your, is it Bobak is the ne- next opera you're doing? Yes, um, Bobak and Dust, but I'm doing, yeah. before that, um, we just announced we're doing this, um, it's called Uncle Alex which is a story about Russian immigrants and is part of a multidisciplinary event, um, which is fantastic. The program's called Faulty Systems, and it'll feature speakers and artists and music, and all at the end we will perform this opera, Uncle Alex, um, about immigration. So it's, it's essentially a combination of so many things so that we can um, understand... One, to hear stories that we haven't heard before, and two, to show how the arts help support these undertold or underrepresented stories. Uh, that is totally free, and that's January. I think the date is January 27th, but, but that's, that's coming next. Yeah, that's a great seg uh, for As One, because one of the things I appreciate about this influx of chamber opera companies in Chicago is that uh, they are able to um, be very agile in their programming and select works that are very timely. And so uh, the transgender, I say movement is like the wrong word, but you know there seems to be a moment happening right now for transgender people. So um, you obviously have spent some time with this libretto and you have a personal connection to the subject matter. Uh, is there something you'd like to tell us about this story, about this work, and and how authentic it might be, or how you know? So the the piece is fantastically done. Of course, Kimberly Reed is transgender as well, and and her work um, rings through on this because it's it's such a great creative team with Kimberly Reed and Mark Campbell working on the libretto, and Laura Kaminsky, uh, obviously writing the music, um, and they've just done such a wonderful job capturing a specific transgender story. Um, while keeping it universal enough that everyone can connect to it. Of course, it is not the transgender story, and I wouldn't want anyone to leave thinking that, oh, that's what it is to be transgender. It, you know, It's so many different experiences, but this is just one, one, one point of view. So you'll meet Hannah, an individual, and go through her story. Um, and I think it just... it so wonderfully captures it from the very beginning where she steals a blouse um, which is such a private and intimate moment in a way but also exciting and then also scary because what if she's caught and what are the implications of that all the way to later where she's coming out and passing for the first time and beginning hormone therapy it's just it rings with uh, truth to it and I think one of the things that's so exciting about that is that our two cisgender creators I, I think their work is so fantastic and so true to it that I think it's really, um, it makes me very optimistic and hopeful in that anyone who wants to learn and anyone who takes the time to listen to these stories can really understand them and, and create wonderful art about them. So I, I just, I think that's such a positive thing about this piece and, and what it means for the change in our culture. 
just to be super explicit, because I have a small brain, uh, you're saying that Laura Kaminsky and Mark Campbell, the composer and the um, librettist, yes. are both cisgender. Yes. And but you feel like they have told a story that rings true. To I absolutely I believe that yes. The especially with with Kimberly Reed's help, um, with the three of them. No, Kimberly Reed was the is the transgender librettist as well. So oh, okay. Kimberly Reed and Mark Campbell are co-librettists okay. on this, and then Laura Kaminsky is our composer. But the three of them have created a really authentic work, and I think that's such a wonderful thing. Well, let's talk about Laura Kaminsky since you have probably more experience with the score than most people in Chicago. Can you tell us about the score and maybe what we can listen for uh, so that we can enjoy it? Of course, so one of the things that's so exciting about this score um, is how it captures... So because because the show is set essentially as an episodic monodrama in which there's only one character and it's jumping through her life, even though she's represented by two people, it has to be really self-aware in a way that Hannah is only kind of on stage at any given moment, mm-hmm. as we're essentially seeing representations of her kind of flashing, and it bounces back and forth between present and looking back in a presentational narrative way and talking directly with the audience. And so um, to help round that out, Kaminsky has put the viola in the mix as well, and so the viola represents a third Hannah, and so then she musically wraps the three together, and their theme, the the way that they they work, they pick up themes and they directly speak back and forth. So as an audience member, I would suggest just connecting very much to the viola line, and any time that it starts to come out and circle around, and and you'll have a theme introduced right at the very beginning. Um, when the viola actually walks out and performs standing before entering into the pit with the rest of us. Uh, And that theme just comes back and speaks over and over again to the performers on stage. So once you start to think of it that way, it's like you can watch this transition where, like Hannah before, played by our baritone, will have a moment of um, intense uncertainty or fear, and then the viola will join when representing our third Hannah, and the combination takes her over and beyond her fear and then it's comfort and and this relaxation. So I think that's so well done um, and really helps capture that mental process of what it means. Um, the other thing that Kaminsky does that I think is just wonderful is she really captures this, what it means to have a perfect moment. And I think we all know our perfect moments are they're pretty much over the second you realize they're perfect and that everything's going, that's a performer right now, a singer <laughs> on their way in. So, uh, um, so, but I think it's so, um, it's so fantastic that she, she captures these little brief moments where everything is right and it sits for four or six bars and then it's over and it's we go on. It's a fleeting moment. It's a Exactly, yeah. yes. And it, it's so, it's just so well captured. Hmm. Well, I'm so glad that you said that so now I know to listen for the viola, but it sounds like the stage director is probably going to take care of that for us. Like, mm-hmm. pay attention to the viola. <laughs> yeah, it, it, she comes out. She just walks across yeah. the stage, and it's it's written right in the score. Yeah. So it's a here here is our that's our something third. That's, that's funny for people who like spend time with string players. Like the viola player always seems to be the one that doesn't get the you know the limelight ever. And like when the conductor is calling out sections at a symphonic concert, like the violas never get to stand for a solo. But um, have you talked with your viola player, and has the has the viola player you know been made aware of some of these things of course yeah 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 the viola player we talked right away about about her importance definitely in rehearsals um and it's it's i think the viola is such a perfect instrument for this and that it's it's uh, it's tone color and it's it's quality one of the challenges is that transgender people don't necessarily Depend, and I don't want to speak for everyone, but don't necessarily sound like a mezzo-soprano right. at the end of their transition, yeah. nor do they sound like a baritone. And I think the viola really helps to capture that middle quality and, and kind of really capture that essence and, and help round out the whole sound between them. So we have to, I could tell we have to wrap this up soon, but uh, can you tell us uh, a little bit about your experience working with these singers and maybe... Give us some praise for the people in your cast. Or... Yes, yeah, so the singers, so the singers have been fantastic. It's been wonderful to Yay, work with them. Singers. Amy Hutchison has been wonderful to work with our director. Um, of course, everyone in the creative team and Fringe Opera. It's been just, it's been, they've made this very 
smooth, and I can't wait to show this production to to everyone in Chicago. I hope that you can come in. And yeah, see Jonathan it. Wilson as Hannah before. Before, yes. Yeah, he's, he's been making the wonderful. circuit. He's like singing with every single chamber opera yeah, I've been. He's he's fantastic. He's got a came. gorgeous voice, and he's a pretty man. Let's just put it out <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> well, can you? It's very exciting. It's um, it's it's probably his first time as a leading lady. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe not, but yeah. he, anyway, you'll get to see him uh, play before and Sam Aguile is playing yeah, Hannah she, after. I think she was singing Lola in Chicago Main Street Opera, Main Street Opera's production of Coloria Rusticana. I remember seeing her. Maybe I'm wrong, but... I'm, I'm not sure I've been here so briefly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so this opens um, Thursday. Thursday. And you run seven. until Tuesday? Sunday. 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 Thursday. Four, four shows. Okay. And um, this is at the uh, Center on Halstead. Uh, it's the Hoover Lapin Theater at the Center on Halstead. And you have obviously have not been in the space yet. When do you get to move in? We go in tomorrow. Okay. So yes, we've been we've been there. Uh, we have a short tech. So they are people are there now, mm-hmm. um, hanging lights. And so that is why our room run is right now, and we cannot be in there because yeah. uh, everyone's hard at work, yeah. <laughs> making sure the space is set up and ready to go. But this is how you put on a show. So. It's quite a production. Yeah. It's yeah. you know, it's how these shows always work, and it's some of the most exciting, <laughs> some of the most exciting performing you can do. And then you have such little time, and then you go yeah. and you do it, and it's wonderful. And you, yeah, it's just a big yeah. You go, we did it. Well, I wish you and the cast uh, much success in this, and I will see you on Thursday. See you on Thursday. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Great stuff, Oliver. With that yeah, kind of last know. minute, I know, so but very happy. cogent and articulate from both you and from Alex. You know, what she said about the pacing of that show, you know, as the producer for this piece, full disclosure, I have talked to her a lot about this pacing, and she's just very aware of it and very, it's very, very important to her, and she really makes that clear. It sounds like a fascinating piece. I, sure. I have to say, like, after talking to her, I'm really looking forward to this. I was going to see it at any rate because I just go to things, you know. Right. But uh, I feel like um, it's going to be very special and that there's going to be a lot of importance played to the uh, paid attention to the music making and that she's thought about this a lot, you know. It's a crazy popular piece right now. There have been 10 productions in the last three years. There's 10 new productions just this season It's alone. the new American opera. This is the uh, <laughs> Chicago premiere Thursday through Sunday through Chicago Fringe Opera at the Center on Halstead. As, Af- one, as one is bumping Porgy and Bess off the number one American opera slot. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, after the break, Oliver and Cummings renew their rivalry and go head-to-head in fantasy fachball. Find out who'll back the winning singer in a head-to-head competition singing from Puccini's, well, you know the one that we can't agree how to pronounce. Stick around. Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Whether you're allergic to opera or you're a devoted fan, our show is for you. We tackle the week's opera headlines and body slam them into a sports radio setup. The result, 60 minutes of play-by-play analysis, exclusive interviews, and scandalous opinions. Plus the heroes, villains, and stats from this crazy art form that we love and love to complain about. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and oh yeah, Matt Cummings. That's the show, all right. Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. No one else in this country talks about opera live on the radio, <laughs> weekend and no weekend, one. except for us. It's true. Yeah. Look it up. Yeah. All right. Uh, just ask Google. Who Just type in a search engine. Hey, who Siri. talks about opera? Every week, week in and out, week in and week out, with really beautiful PSAs. All right. Well, it is time for a relatively new segment around here. Who's on your team? Time for Fantasy Fuckball. And it's only on Opera Box Score. I always worry we're going to get in trouble when Norm 
says the name of that segment. We just have to send a transcript and we're fine. Yeah. Nice call. Uh, all right, boys, who's going to set this so up? So I'm going to pass it over to Matt to set up the actual um, competition and to give us a little bit of a context about this opera. But uh, as you know, Lyric Opera is in the full swing of their season and Turandó, or Turandot, uh, comes shortly after Pearl Fishers, which opens up this week. And so I thought for those people who live in Chicago and who might have never seen Turandot or uh, who plan on seeing it, you might get a little, uh, you know, preview of one of the most difficult arias in the repertoire, which is Turandot's entrance aria. And she gets to sit out the entire of Act One and uh, comes into the opera with one of the most difficult arias ever written. So with that, I will leave it to Matt to give us a little more context about this. So it's a role that's really famous for being incredibly short in terms of how much you want to sing and still being an absolute long buster because it never lets up. Uh, and a lot of that reason for that is because Puccini's normal com- compositional style was really f- uh, focused on melody. And you've listened to things like La Boheme, Madame Butterfly, they sparkle. Even the even the kind of boring parts are still melodic. For Turndote, he was trying to draw on the more Wagnerian school of composition where everything is really compact and self-referential and other there are some great tunes to be sure but they, they're spread out a little bit more uh, across sort of a whole musical work that doesn't, doesn't really reduce so well into little excerpts and he was slaving over this opera for I think four years between when he started it and he died before he completed it uh, to the point where he even looked into buying a very expensive set of specific gongs that would have the the right kind of sound that he wanted for the orchestra. It was really his pet project. Uh, and at the center of this opera, Turandot, is the title character, uh, which is a famous role for just how hard it is. And it is hard because it requires a huge voice, but also one that can sing at the top of the range, basically, for the entire role. Uh, and P- and generally, the bigger the voice, the less comfortable you are at the top of it. Uh, so the first Turandot was a singer, a Polish-Italian singer named Rosa Reiza, who mostly sang uh, Verdi and Wagner roles, kind of going at it from both sides of it. Uh, and as the opera kept getting performed, it premiered in 1926. Uh, and it was for about 40 years after that in the in the 50, or 34 years after that in the 50s and 60s you get the real Turandot of all time which is Birgit Nilsson uh, and going into this competition Oliver and I decided that neither one of us was going to be able to pick Birgit Nilsson because it's just not fair just would yeah. have been a blowout huh? yeah but okay. but that does point to the fact that this role has been uh, really the domain of two types of singers dramatic uh, Italian singers who can do roles like Norma Aida and the Wagnerian singers. So I chose as my contestant a singer in the Italian school, um, an American soprano who's not very well known but should be more known. Her name is Eleanor Ross, born in 1930. And Matt? And I picked Leonie Riesenek, who's an Austrian soprano, uh, who is mostly known for her Strauss and also her Wagner, but did sing a fair amount of Italian music as well. So let's hear the uh, opening phrases of Turandot. Uh, this is the very declamatory, quasi-recit uh, introduction to the aria In Questa Regia.
And that was... Uh, uh, so the first excerpt was Lanny Riesenek. Right. And um, Lanny, your recording, uh, Matt, is from where? It, it's a studio recording uh, from her Aria recitals disc that she made in about... Uh, 1958-59. She did perform this role a couple times at mostly around San Francisco Opera, right around when she came to start to perform in America in uh, 1956 or so. Uh, and it was not a role that she kept in her repertoire for a really long time. Uh, and my recording is a live recording uh, from Ed Rosen's premier opera collection of recordings. Uh, that is an outdoor performance from 1974. And, and we'll hear later on that Richard Tucker is the Kaloff, uh, who was actually 60 at the time. Um, so we, we'll let you give your decisions at the end of the uh, the four clips. But let's just say, sure as you're tallying your score, I feel like the opening of the aria uh, is a way for the soprano to get her voice out. Uh, and to show her tone and, and within the first couple of phrases to show uh, the power that's inherent in the voice. But I also think that it's uh, also at the beginning, you have to like, set the scene and there has to be some you know, characterization happening. And the idea of Turandot is that she's this young girl who is just a stone cold, you know what, she's mad. She's mad about her <laughs> past. She's mad about history. She's mad about men. And she wants to punish men. And she begins to tell the story about her great grandmother or her I forget who's the way way back a thousand yeah. years hence yeah or, of how uh, her relative was basically raped and uh you know abused by a man and she and, is going to get her revenge and she's still haunted by the scream that she let out that word comes up a lot in this aria is grido yeah hmm. uh, and that was the you'll you'll hear it in a couple segments uh, I I, I want to agree with what you said, but I also want to point out that this it, this beginning you really don't get a lot of help from the orchestra. It's very sparse. It's very mysterious. Yeah. Uh, and I listening to a couple other singers on on YouTube, it is a minefield for pitch to go awry. It is a minefield for uh, things to just get kind of harsh. And I didn't think that either one of those happened. Yeah, they both stayed on really well. And I, I mean, I think the sparseness in the orchestration is to give the feeling of recitative here. Uh, so the next collection of clips, we'll begin with Eleanor Ross uh, and then move to the Reasonick clip. But uh, you'll hear uh, some, it's be become a little more arioso and it's starting to build to a climax. So we're starting to see how the singer builds their voice and, you know, stretches the volume. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR. We're playing Fantasy Fachball, George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings. Two singers, one aria. 
I will just say that Eleanor Ross is not pacing it well, but in a, such an exciting way. Like she's giving so much tone even before the climax <laughs> of the opera aria comes, and she's got you know another act to sing after and this. She's not yeah. afraid for of chest voice. Yeah, that and is for sure the chest voice is strong with her. The force is strong with this one, <laughs> and yeah, and like the voice is already starting to fray a little bit because she maybe went a little bit too far in that moment, and you hear how the chords don't quite connect, and you get that kind of scratchy sound because. You you rub them too hard, you know, and then they they don't quite come together all cleanly anymore. She's really you know? rolling those R's. Oh, it's though. so good. It's really good. <laughs> what about you, Matt? You better you better say something important, Cummings. <laughs> what I really love about Lanny Reasonek is that she had her her tone is kind of like a magic eight ball. You never know with what is going to come out from phrase to phrase. It changes so much. It's really sometimes veiled and mysterious, and other times it is just glowing white hot. And yeah. I thought that she used uh, a lot of that. Uh, a lot of the combination between her, like, kind of a hooded tone and uh, then otherwise also just let it rip. Yeah. So well, that she's so unpredictable. Last week we talked about Patricia Rossette, and I have to, and Patricia Rossette's an amazing singing actress, but if there was ever a singing actress, it was Lainey Riznick. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was nutso. <laughs> like, she did so many things, she's... and it was always so exciting to see what her ideas are going to be, you know? And she was famous for just kind of shrieking at yeah. dramatic moments yeah. that not just not musically at all, just adding in screams. So here <laughs> is the first high C of the role, uh, and it's a loud one. We'll start with Lainey Riznek. The audience couldn't contain themselves. (laughs) So uh, for me, I mean, I love Lainey Wiesnick, but um, she, I don't think, has like a super secure idea about technique. And she's sometimes lucky to get, she makes the most amazing phrases. Like she, she has great ideas, but the voice or the technique isn't, isn't always there to support her idea. Whereas Eleanor Wiesnick is just like a singing machine. She's just like all technique. I mean, she's just all tone, you know, and that top, was pro- I've never heard it live, but it was huge. And there's another recording of this aria with Franco Corelli, and she's toe-to-toe with one of the loudest singers of all time. So, What's your uh, reply? If you listen to Riesenek, though, there's just a little... that There's that hint of wildness in it, yeah. like it might go off the trails, but yeah. it never... Well, in this one, it never does. <laughs> uh, and you... I, I really love how she does things like stretches out syllables of things and just really enjoys the sounds of the words in order to make them so much more dramatic. Well, I also feel like Riesenek uses overtones the way Germanic singers use them. Like, you get these really interesting pitch, like almost sharpness, because of the way they place their voices, you know? Whereas Riesenek is a completely Italianate sound where it's like open throat, and it's like there's not a lot of overtone. I mean, there's overtone there, but it's like a very core based sound you know Mm. as opposed to an overtone based it's much more consistent that's for sure but all right so here's the famous climax of the aria uh right before the riddle scene and i have to say i had to do a little chop shop here to just keep this short i took out the tenor phrase in both uh in both recordings and we'll start this time uh with eleanor ross Thank you. 
this is so tough. Yeah. I have to try and pick. I just want to say that whatever you choose, I'm actually very happy right now because I just want our audience to know about both of these singers that they don't know about either of them. And Lainey Riesnick sings that like she's Electra. <laughs> and, and Eleanor Ross sings it like she's Norma. I mean, that's just basically yeah, your choice. Yeah. You know? That's beautifully put. I mean, first of all, I learn so much about singing from you two gentlemen every time we do this segment because uh, I'm a director. I, I, there's only so much I understand about how this really works. And it's fascinating to get this detailed and to hear these two people like this back to back. I mean, it's essentially a tie, really, is, is what Oliver just said. For me, it comes down to that fourth and final round. I think that the Eleanor Ross, although it's an older recording that Oyez has something to do with it, to me, it's a, it's a fuller, wider, more open sound. And I think it's more in tune as well. Am I right? Yeah. That, that would not be rare for Leonie yeah. Riesenek. She was... It's an electric sound, yeah. but sometimes it can go a little awry. And even though the those high C's are held longer yeah. than the Eleanor Ross recording, I would still vote for Eleanor Ross. And so, I mean, like I've never heard these singers in the in the in the hall, but I just hear amazing things about what it was like to be in the audience for their performances. Um, Eleanor Ross, I think, is the type of voice that goes like right to your heart, like because it's like so like connected. And Lanny Reason X is the type of voice that's like thrilling because it's like she does crazy stuff. And like, you also kind of have to stop and think about what it is that's actually going on with her. <laughs> Thank you both for that fantasy fachball. Hey, after the break, it's the two-minute drill, and we're asking just how high can a person sing anyway? Stick around for the answer on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Give me 60 more seconds of your time so I can share a secret with you. When I tell people about Opera Box Score, they always ask, how come we're a live talk radio show, not just a podcast? The answer? We want to give listeners like you the chance to call into our show and have your opinion heard live on air. It's easy. Stream our show live on WNUR.org slash pop-up on Mondays at 9 p.m. Central Time. Then give us a call during the broadcast with your take on what we're talking about. The number? 847-866-WNUR. Wait, do people even have letters on their phones anymore? 847-866-9687. Talk to you later. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from last week in two minutes or less. President Trump arrived in China last Wednesday, the centerpiece of a 13-day trip that aides promised would include a stern warning about the North Korean threat. But after that, the group was off to the Peking Opera, including a performance of acrobatics called Monkey King. Opera News Magazine editor-in-chief Paul Driscoll has announced the Recipients of the 13th Annual Opera News Awards. This year's honorees are conductor William Christie, mezzo-soprano Fiorenza Cosotto, tenor Vittorio Gigolo, soprano Hei Kyung Hong, and soprano Sonia Yoncheva. Stephanie Blythe is the special music guest. A new opera by American composer John Adams aims to tell the true story of California's gold rush. It premieres at San Francisco Opera next week. It's titled Girls of the Golden West, which is a twist on the Puccini 1910 opera Girl of the Golden West. Well, it's brief, but the A above high C that the soprano Audrey Luna reaches in the Thomas Addis new opera The Exterminating Angel is so high it's never actually been sung in the 137-year history of the Metropolitan Opera. Chicago Opera Theater's former box office manager Brian Gore is due in court later this month, charged with stealing more than $100,000 in ticket receipts during the more than three seasons that he worked there, according to sources. American stage director Frank Cassaro died last Saturday at the age of 92. He was one of the nation's leading directors, working largely with New York City Opera. And on this day, another death, 1868. It was the death, of course, of Giacchino Rossini. That is the two-minute drill.
Welcome back to Opera Box Score with George, Oliver, and Matt. That's what you're listening to. WNUR 89.3 FM Opera Box Score doing a great show tonight. Conductor Alex Enyert on the program with us. Just did a fantasy fachball on Puccini's Turndot. And now we get down to it with the two-minute drill. Oliver Camacho, where do you want to start well, tonight? I want to. There's a bunch of stories here that we need to talk about, but I, right now, what's on my mind is that I want to prep you while I'm talking to give us a little bit of an overview of the COT story, which we didn't cover just now. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll add that right now because that's breaking news, uh, sort of. Uh, but while you're um, preparing what you're going to say about that, the Opera News Awards are so infuriating to me. <laughs> How dare you honor? Fiorenza Cosotto and Sonia Yancheva, you know, at the same time. I mean, there are so many singers who have not yet received their effing Opera News Award, and nobody really cares that much about it. It's really just marketing tool for the Metropolitan Opera. Yeah, yeah of course. But, I mean, you know, thank God for people like Victoria Gagola and Sonia Yancheva who are, like, making opera today and are selling tickets and are, you know, stars. Even Hei Kyung Hong, I will say, like, deserves that award, that that. Uh, recognition more than Yancheva and Grigola because she's been singing forever, you know. But and it's always it, they always have a mixture of like elder statesmen and young up and comers so that they can show the difference between you know here's but the, can la- you here's imagine, the old guard going out and the new guard coming in. Can it's, you imagine being Fiorenza Cosotto and being on stage with those punks? <laughs> 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 How dare they? You know. Um, anyway, so that's what what got my. Panties in a bunch. Got, uh, you got your going Next, up. Matt, you have a reaction to something there. I I was really interested in the not it, the story about Audrey Luna singing a high A at the Metropolitan Opera has caused quite an uproar <laughs> in the in the internet singer community uh, in terms of the focusing on the circus trick aspect of it more than more than the art and so these kind of fireworks are being celebrated at the expense of so who wrote the article said wolf that wrote i think it was zachary wolf okay so zachary Wolf put out an article earlier this week or last week that you know details the highest notes sung in the standard canon of opera and who sings them and there's excerpts on their website and it's actually a really fun article to read yeah but so many people in if you're like if you have singers in your facebook friend circle are so mad about this article because they feel like you know why are we talking about this and not talking about the opera actually we are talking about the opera and there are so many articles about this opera and like the Met is doing an amazing job getting this opera into out there in the world you know like and, and good for them look yeah. this is a piece that premiered at the Salzburg festival this is the first time it's being done in the u.s for the Met to be doing a world premiere, new production, contemporary opera is a big deal. So, yes, any sort of hype, I would sign off on. Should we take a listen, by the way? To the to, world's to highest thing? note ever sung. Let's, let's take a listen. And, and hey, don't, At the Met. Don't cough, okay? There you go. That's it. That's a high A above high C. All the uh, way down to a low A below middle C. Big. Yeah, so that's a three-octave... You know, circus trick there. <laughs> I think, you know how you always say drink, Oliver, every yeah. time I, like, name drop? Yeah. I think the next time you da- name drop, I'm just going to play this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even that. I mean, like, Audrey Luna, God bless her. I mean, she's amazing. But it's not even that impressive to me. It's just whistle Tony, you know? I'd rather hear it sustained or hear it staccato or do something with that note, but, but not just like. But look, I mean, first of all, so, and this is off the article in the New York Times, is that. Thomas Addis wrote this part for her. Of course. And and yeah. spoke to her knowing that, that she was going to be able to pull it off. They have a past history. She had also sung in his opera, The Tempest, that has a high G in it. Yeah, yeah. he wrote it up high. He kept putting in higher and higher notes as he worked with her for The Tempest. Exactly. And, you know, and she's <laughs> made, uh, and I think this is a compliment, she's made a, a real... Part of her career, some of her bread and butter has been doing Queen of the Night and been doing the high... Uh, aria yeah. in in that as well. I'm um, actually the show that I met her on. She was singing Queen of the Night. Oh, and she she's great on stage. She's fun to watch. Yeah, she's no, good looking. I'm she's not got taking talent. anything away from her. I'm no, just, I know. Yeah, I'm just annoyed that like people are annoyed. You know, people just <laughs> like to complain. 
And maybe it's jealousy or maybe they think that the attention is the wrong place. The fact of the matter is it's a cool thing. It's not a trick. It takes work. And I think people misunderstand that. And don't hate on Zachary Wolf. Like, he spent some time putting that article together, you know? Exactly. With all his little excerpts. Let's uh, let's bring it home in Chicago here. I'll I'll skip the Trump and China thing because it's so obvious that, Mm. like, they did a piece called Monkey King, which he was watching, and he clearly (laughs) didn't get it because he was a total (laughs) idiot. This this thing about Chicago Opera Theater is just bizarre. Okay, did you talk about it? I'm so confused. I gave a little synopsis of it, yes, but there's there's more to say. This is from articles in the Tribune and in the Sun-Times. And I think it cranes Chicago Chicago business. It's like all over the place. Probably, as well. Well, yeah, essentially, uh, Brian Gore, who used to be the box office manager there over a a three to four year period, the two articles do not agree on a number of points here. And obviously, we want to get this right. But essentially, what he was doing was allegedly diverting customers' credit card ticket payments to a personal account and then recording those tickets as complimentary within the, the COT box office system. Right. I've worked in a box office for years, yeah. actually, when I first moved to Chicago. It would be really hard to do this. Like, you technically, think? Well, no, it would be I hard to do it if do there it. was a staff. But if it's like a small organization where they have one box office Fair person, enough. you know? Man, you got a lot of balls to take a hundred grand. Over the course of three or four years. Okay, so, so it's kind of like a little... Yeah, he probably tested the waters the first year. Death and then, by yeah. a thousand paper cuts yeah. or a, a drop by drop. What's it's the... like an office space when they get the, the rounding error from all the bank accounts. <laughs> Just a little bit a little bit at a time. You know, this, this guy's going to appear in court down on um, uh, 26th in California at the, at the main courthouse mm-hmm. later in November. I kind of want to go. And like I mean, just, to I, get, just to boo him, to tar or? and feather him? No, or? no, 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 not out of hate. I just, uh, I assume it's open to the public. Yeah. I, I just, I have a, I don't have a stake in it. I'm interested by it. I mean, when was the last time an opera person was in a criminal court? Oh, I know, and that's I, I think that this is actually very well timed because the rest was made recently. But it seems to somehow coincide <laughs> with the opening of the COT season this year. So we have. You know, the council with Patricia Rossette getting great reviews, yeah. mostly. And then this scandalous story about COT, you know, missing $100,000. Maybe it's like rely on the goodwill or try to use the goodwill of people who enjoyed themselves and Patricia Rossette. Maybe it's time to donate some money to COT. Well, let's know? be honest, right? Like, one way of looking at the money is, hey, we have 100000 more dollars than we thought we had. If they can get it, back. One they're of the not article, get it back. One of the articles says that it, they're not even sure if they're going to be able to recover it. Well, Cummings has got <laughs> it exactly right. Is that That's the other side of that coin. Is like, I'm sure they, they don't guy, know how much money this guy Look at this guy. Has, I'm sure so. he bought a lot of candy with that money. Ooh, that's, that's a hard... <laughs> a lot of donuts. That's a hard, <laughs> look, nobody looks good in their mugshot, Oliver. You would look <laughs> dreadful in your mugshot <laughs> if, you, if you had to... Just give me a hat to wear. I'm trying to think what crime you would go in for. Would it be money related? Uh, no. N- no, no. I, I think it'd be. Um, I probably public say urination. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it at public urination. <laughs> it'd be something indecent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Corrupting what the a, youths of Athens. What a what a nightmare for COT. Like this is this is just like the last thing. I'm just guessing here. This is probably the last thing that they a expected and b want to deal with after what seems to have been a pretty successful opener to their season. I don't know. I think they controlled it a little bit to to release this news at this time. I don't think it was. I mean, this. I don't buy that. No, but they've been investigating this. It's not like they all of a sudden just figured this out like yesterday. They've been investigating this crime for a couple of years now, and they finally got the piece to fit together, and the arrest was made just as COT was closing its season. (laughs) It's it's, uh, opening Opening, performance. Opening season. Yeah. Is this the kind of press that you want, though? All I, press is good press. I think that they come. I, I think that they come off pretty well from the story. Honestly, yeah. they, it, it's it's a bad apple r- ruining the bushel more than a like they like it's just one person. It's not like they've been the whole board has been indicted or anything like that. But it's also a warning to all you small org- arts organizations that don't have a lot of checks and balances. Like, make sure that the guy that you have controlling the money is somebody that you trust. You know, it's, a, see what it's kind a fair of, what point. Kind of car he's driving and. That's a fair point. Yeah. Well, hey, maybe I'll be able to make it down to the courthouse yeah. for this one. It's in a, it says right here, no, November 29th. We should go there. We should like create like a type of protest, you know, like a, a oh, Opera Lives Matters I, type of thing. I was thing, thinking you know? like like a fedora and like a little press card in the <laughs> um, hat band. Hmm. You'd look great in a fedora. I know. I'd look Oliver. good in old-timey clothing, except yeah. I'm not white. 
That's okay. And you, it's hard to imagine ra- biracial people wearing old-timey clothing. Cummings, so. you ever you ever wear a bow tie every now and again? No, it's not a good look on me. No? I don't. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Hey, let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Thank you, gentlemen, for a great hour of Opera Talk on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. We got a great show next week as well. I want to just get this out there right really? away. I'm not going to be here. How's it going to be great? That's exactly why it's going to be great. Uh, <laughs> I cannot wait. You're, you're stinky, dude. That's true. I need to shower. Um, it's, it's our annual Thanksgiving show. We give thanks for those things that we're grateful mm. for in opera. We want to hear from you, our listeners. Get in touch with us through Facebook, Twitter, email, phone. Let us know what you're thankful for. And some of your replies we will get out there on the air. Good call, bad call. I've got a bunch, and we've got a little bit of time. So exter- Exterminating Angel... Uh, EHD broadcast is this Saturday for a public service announcement for those of you who would like to see the highest note ever performed in life in the universe. <laughs> um, full disclosure, <laughs> I sing with a chamber choir called Bella Voce, and Bella Voce does its annual very stylish and historically informed messiah this weekend. Um, you can look up bellavoce.org, and yours truly will get to sing Comfort Ye in Every Valley, so I will comfort you and I will raise you. And um, I have to say that last week, uh, Christine Gerke, Eric Owens, and contralto Lauren Decker gave an amazing performance at a series called Beyond the Aria, which is already sold out. So I'm telling you about this so that next year when they release the tickets or when the tickets go on sale for Beyond the Aria, you should get yourself a subscription to this series because Christine Gerke sang like... Uh, 100 Easy Ways to Lose Your Lover. She sang Cecilia. She sang La Courte Pie by Poulenc. Uh, and she, I mean, and she was hilarious and she was dramatic and she was, you know, beautiful. And it was everything. And it was a, a small, it's like 300 people get to go to this thing. And it's a really fun thing to do. And Lauren Decker was amazing. And Eric nice. Owens played, really? the, played the oboe. Really, any well, excuse odd. to be in the same room as Christine Gerke is She's a good amazing. Person. It's great. Uh, hey, two quick shout outs for me. One, thanks so much to Min from Boston who donated to our show. Yes, Yay. you can do that too. You can just do it through our website, operaboxscore.com. Also, another shout out. It's a music thing. My cousin from England was in town this weekend, and he and I went to Kingston Mines. You've been to Kingston yeah, Mines? Oh, down in Lincoln Park? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I haven't been there in like 10 years. Uh, it's exactly the same, by the way. Uh, but we had a phenomenal night there. The, the way the Kingston Mines is set up is there's like two sort of rooms side by side, one of which always has live music in it. And you just kind of hop back and forth all night listening to music. So it's great. Like, uh, two great girls set. and one copper smack. Nothing like that <laughs> at all. Oh, my God. My eyes are now bleeding. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR's Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to comment and share our posts and on Twitter at Opera Box Score. And you can also leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For co-host Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, whether you sing high, low, or not at all. We're back next Monday, 9 Central. It's our annual Thanksgiving show. If it's an aria, a singer, a production, something else, let us know what you're thankful for in opera. And again, we're going to give shout-outs to selections of the replies that we receive. The Rosebud Show is up next. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.